Gonna have a real good time together We're gonna have a real good time together We're gonna laugh the child together Have a real good time together Welcome back. It's Jokerman Podcast. It's Evan. And Ian. And today, we have a special guest who actually has uh, some intimate knowledge of the subject, which is rare because not many people have intimate knowledge of the subject of this episode, which is uh, our second episode on Mo Tucker's solo career. Jeff Fierzig, he is the documentarian and director of such films as The Devil and Daniel Johnston, great portrait of great artists. Also, Half Japanese, the band that would be king, uh, author, the JT Leroy story, and Mike Judge presents Tales from the Tour Bus. But today, he's going to be with us to talk about something that he knows way more about than most people. Uh, that would be the solo career of one Maureen Tucker. This is our second episode on Mo Tucker's solo output. And I understand you have some uh, personal history, some brushes with the artist herself i think it might be fun because you know i've been listening to a lot of your uh jokerman podcasts pertaining to velvets and lou and john kale so i i i already love the idea that your audience is really tuned into this you know rabbit hole that i spend a lot of time in my life in so it's really fun to pivot to mo tucker who i think is probably the most underappreciated but integral member of the Velvet Underground and their greatness, hmm. uh, at least in my opinion. Um, so I'll give you, let me set the stage a little bit, which might be helpful to get to this album we're going to talk about. This album I really adore, uh, Life in Exile After Abdication, her second uh, full-length LP. Um, so let me set the stage. So dig this. So my pal is this guy named Phil Milstein. And what's interesting about Phil that people don't know is that in 1978 and 79, when the Velvet Underground were absolutely not appreciated or yet rediscovered, he started the Velvet Underground Appreciation Society and started publishing an incredible fanzine called What Goes On. Now, you have to realize that all the albums were out of print. They sold really poorly. You couldn't get your hands on Velvet Underground unless you were really in the know cutout bins at this point and phil went on a cross-country trip and he found mo tucker living in denver colorado she was married mm. she was working at walmart and she, you know he was she was so excited first to get the phone call from phil that there was even any interest in this band that she was in that at least in her own mind knew was really great but absolutely was a failure to get that kind of love for this work that she had done. And then she sort of like 
not sort of, she left the music industry. She certainly didn't have writing credits on those, on those Velvet Underground albums. Mm-hmm. And she's working in a Walmart in Denver and she's got kids. And all of a sudden someone's saying, oh my God, you know, I love this work that you did. And next thing you know, he's in Denver and he's sitting at her kitchen table. And it was really that enthusiasm from a great fan that burned her to get a multi-track recorder, stick it on her kitchen table and buy a microphone and record the first album, uh, which of course was called Playing Possum. Playing Possum. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was because Phil found her. Wow. And I love that story because I I also love that album, by the way. Fantastic album. We did cover it and it is a, a delight. Yeah, and I think it's good to mention it before we get into the next album because you have to understand why this even happened. Because that's a home recorded, pretty well recorded, well produced album. And then she was so excited by the work, she self released it, which is pure indie. She was on the phone and working it with record store owners around the country and shipping them and really pushing this thing. And I thought that was beyond cool. Obviously, Lou Reed. And John Cale had major label recording deals and had done a lot of albums at that point on, on their solo careers. Nico had made a few albums, but, you know, Mo was like invisible. And all of a sudden she's coming out of the darkness. Sure. So that's just the phase one of uh, the backstory. So phase two, we have to give a little credit to Jonathan Richmond. Yes. There was a recording made in uh, 19, well, it came out in 1980. Let's assume it was recorded around 7980, even before playing Possum. He was really the first. He gets her in a studio, probably in the Boston area, and they record, I'm sticking with you. I'm sticking with you. Yeah. Yeah. So now, if you're a VU fan, you know, what's so great about those albums, you only have two songs where this naive, sweet, bedtime melody voice singer comes in. That's the drummer, Mo Tucker doing I'm Sticking With You, and of course, the other great song, After Hours. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you love those songs. How could you not? And then all of a sudden, that's that's that voice. It's in your head. It's a it's like a mythology around her and her singing. And um, before we get into the album, I mean, I also really believe, you know, as far as like minimalism, I mean, let's give it up. One of the greatest drummers of all time. No My question. Favorite anyway. I really mean it. Yeah. And um, no one played like her. And in a, in a, you know, in a testosterone filled world where everyone talks about Keith Moon and John Bonham and blah, blah, and all the great drummers, you know, she's really left out and it's wrong. And she is really one of the reasons that that band is sound, uh, sounds so unique on the albums that she plays on, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so now, the next phase that's really cool that has to also do with Phil Milstein and the Velvet Underground Appreciation Society is they are obsessive half Japanese, Jad Fair, David Fair fans. And when Mo was at the dining room table with Phil, she's like, you know, hey, why don't you guys play me something? What's going on? What's happening now? And Phil played her an early half Japanese song that actually mentions the Velvet Underground from the first. Uh, EP calling old mm. girls, and he put her a few other things as well. But that's what she went crazy for. She's like, "Oh my god, these guys are great!" And the next thing you know, she's on the phone. This is all told to me through Phil, calling Jad Fair, and they form this incredible friendship out of uh, admiration and respect. 
And that became the impetus of the album we're about to talk about. Because what happened was Mo and Jad all end up on the same label, which was 50 Skadillion Watts in the hands of Babies Records. And that's where it sort of all converged on my head, let's say. So I'm in Hoboken now. And I knew about half Japanese from college radio when I was a WPRB Prince radio DJ in the uh, early to mid eighties, as well as a WTSR Trenton state DJ. Anyway, but I'd never really went deep on them. And all of a sudden this album hits on 50 Skadillion Watts in the hands of babies records, charmed life. And it absolutely was the album that floored me. And half Japanese were at this moment in time in the underground, truly the kinks. And then all of a sudden this tour shows up in Maxwell's and Hoboken and it's called the Charmed Life Tour. But what is it really? It's Mo Tucker and half Japanese splitting songs, sharing the same band. Wow. That's called the Charmed Life Tour. And I went and saw that because I could walk across the street to see that show. What year would that have been? I'm going to call it 88 for fun because why not? Sure. I think it was 88. Sure. And listen, I've seen a thousand great shows, but this is before... This is like peak underground, peak indie, because the world wasn't turned upside down and ruined. It was still intimate and regional. And there it was like this thing could show up in your town. You probably wouldn't know about it. And if you got lucky enough to just be there, it was magic. They raised the roof. They played to like three in the morning. They wouldn't leave the stage. And Mo was doing songs and half Japanese doing songs and Jad. And it was just like, what am I watching here? And Mo was great. Now, remember, Mo at this point is on rhythm guitar. We know her as a drummer. They had half Japanese had a drummer. Sometimes they would do double drums and she would do her stand up drum thing. That was pretty cool. But she's on rhythm guitar, holding it down and singing. And there there she was, this mythical voice from the albums that we loved and the band that we all loved. The band had only recently become rediscovered. This is when the the VU resurgence started happening. Um, In 85, I believe, I remember... You know, and every week the college radio albums would hit. And there it was. It was called um, Velvet Underground VU. Mm-hmm. It was the first official release before the other original albums got re-released. So, so all we ever really knew about was Walk on the Wild Side and Lou Reed, maybe Rock and Roll Animal and who that guy was. And then all of a sudden it was like, so it was really Phil Milstein who lit this fuse that continues to grow to, to this day and even to your fans on this podcast. So I think we owe him some credit. Wow. Major Shout namaste to, to Phil, Phil Milstein. Yeah, hope absolutely. Hope you're listening, and, Phil. and a great guy, by the way. And a great sure. writer. He, he he contributes a lot for Ugly Things magazine, which is a great indie music publication. I urge your listeners to check out. Every issue is amazing. By a guy named Mike, Mike Stacks. Anyway, let's get back to the matter at hand. Mo Tucker, right? So anyway, so I end up at that point deciding to make and finance my own independent feature doc about half Japanese. And I decide, well, you know, why don't we go film the sessions on 16 millimeter? And who's the producer of the sessions? Well, it's Maureen Tucker. And, you know, in my mind, it might've been crazy at the time that felt historic to me. I was like, okay, we're going to make a film about a band that nobody would ever choose to, you know, blow a hundred thousand dollars shooting 60 millimeter film on. But it's like, oh, my Mimo Tucker, the Velvet Underground is going to be producing. You know, I mean, this is historic. Somebody should document this. That's sure. in my young mind. And I did that. And um, I'm proud of that. 
because it, nobody would have ever filmed that session. You know, this to me was like a legendary session where a great collaboration was happening. And what was really cool for me was, um, you know, we do a little chapter in the film. The film is called Half Japanese, The Band That Would Be King. And if your listeners feel like checking it out, it's only available on Vimeo. This so, was 1994 that that came out? Came out in 93, but the session was filmed in 90. We started oh, filming in 90 right after the concert I saw of the Charm Life Tour we just spoke about. Mm. Okay, so this has all happened concurrently. But this is dovetails into the backstory of life in exile, which I did not attend. It was like literally a few months before I'm filming. You see? But I ended up learning everything about it through my research. So anyway... Mo, you know, the Velvet Underground are largely discussed in the film by Don Fleming, who at this point is working with Laurie Anderson on the archival releases from Half yeah, Japanese. We had, we had Don on the show. Yeah, Don's amazing. And uh, he's in the film, of course, because he was a member of Half Japanese. And we talk about Velvet. And then out of a surprise, you know, a big surprise to anyone in the room, they decide to record a version of I Heard Her Call My Name from White Light, White Heat. And we rolled, of course. And then Mo, who was just in the producer chair, gets up and she goes behind the drums to do stand-up drums. Wow. And, you know, objectively, it was powerful. And we rolled on it. And she was doing that thing that we had all not that long, not that not that not too previously had just fallen in love with, you know, the Velvet Underground, all those albums and her her style of drumming. There she was doing it. And they did a fantastic version of it, and it, it's featured in the film. So anyway, so my kind of my dream out of outside of telling the whole story, you know, was fulfilled, capturing that and being a part of, you know, hopefully disseminating my passion for the Velvet Underground. And then it was really cool because then we had to clear the rights to the film, and Lou Reed and Sylvia Reed, you know, they gave me that song for free. I mm -hmm. thought that was amazing. So that was mm -hmm. very generous of them. Wow. Um, so let's get to life in exile. This is really interesting now. So now all of a sudden it's years later and I'm going to make this film, the devil and Daniel Johnston. And one, the last track on the album of life in exile, which we're about to talk about is a Daniel Johnston song. It's called right. do it right. And it's a fantastic song. And you're saying to yourself, well, you know, why did this song end up on this album? Why isn't it on, the Daniel Johnston 1990 album, but there's a reason. So the producer of 1990, of course, was the great indie producer Kramer, which is, he's technically the producer of Life in Exile, but he's not, Mo takes the credit, but Kramer's producing, Kramer's engineering, he's doing it, he doesn't mix it, I guess. And uh, they do this session, and what happened was Daniel Johnston was in town and there was great fear for the Mo Tucker sessions that Lou Reed, who was going to guest on this album, on guitar, Mo's album, that the idea was that Daniel Johnson should not meet Lou Reed by any circumstances. Hmm. So MC Costa. Why, why was that? <laughs> they would just fear that Lou should not meet Daniel. This is what I was told. Okay. So as the story goes, Chad Fair, who had just met Daniel and befriended him, and they befriended each other. Jad and MC Costic, who was the other member of the Velvet Underground Appreciation Society, were given an assignment. Take Daniel Johnson away from the Noise New York studio, Kramer's session with Mo, before Lou Reed gets here. They cannot meet. Okay? That was the rules. So they got on a ferry 
and they went to visit visit the uh, Statue of Liberty. And that's where Daniel Johnston, unbeknownst to Jad and MC Caustic, drew hundreds of Christian fish, Ithacus and Scarpies, uh, through the staircase of Lady Liberty and then got arrested by uh, Port Authority police. This is all <laughs> the devil and Daniel Johnston. While that's happening, and we can cut to the album now, if you go to the first track, which is amazing, on Life in Exile After Abdication, Hey Mersh. Hey Mersh. Lou Reed on lead guitar. That's right. Playing a style of lead that honestly, I mean, I followed his whole solo career and I love it, but he hasn't unleashed like that on uh, that you hear on this album since early like, Vel- since the, yeah, that's since right. The Velvets. It's truly really something. It's ferocious, and it's so ferocious because I talked to Kramer about it. He said, "Yeah, Lou was worried that it was too aggressive," and Kramer's like, "No, no, no, it was perfect." And oh. He's right. So, so I, cool. yeah. I love Hey Mersh. I think it's great. Yeah. Well, who's who's Mersh? Well, yeah, that's a good question. If you, <laughs> I, I was re-listening to the album for the first time in quite a few years the other day, just trying to, you know, parse it all. I think this is a great working class message. A lot of the songs are about her being frustrated working at Walmart. Yeah. And Mersh, I think, is like short for like what the Minutemen would say, like Project Mersh, like commercial. Mm. I, that's what I'm getting out of it. I right? would see that. Yeah, that, that, you know, that seems like it would come from the same sort of uh, spirit or ethos, you know, just of these folks around this time. Uh, but yeah, that's a great point. I mean, this whole, this, this record is like fucking incredible because it's a rock album about being fucking poor, which is like something that you don't, like people don't people just don't do that like that's not a very rock and roll kind of subject and she does it in this way that it's like there's so much uh humor and and warmth and kind of fun to it um at the same time it's not like a you know poor poor pitiful me you know to quote warren uh type of thing here uh it's just it's such an exciting and forward-looking and bright kind of album but about this just like completely mundane misery that this person you know experiences on a daily basis i I, there's i've never heard anything like it well i I think that what's cool about the way that it comes across is that it's like there's all these blues things that happen too and she's she's so enamored with the blues like that is i think where we get that kind of uh dealing musically with your shitty situation um with some kind of humor and but the thing that's special about this record to your point Ian I mean it's like it it seems like the sound of somebody who's just been itching for, dying for a, a, an opportunity to do this again and of course it's like all this built up frustration of like knowing you were in the fucking velvet underground and you're just bagging fucking groceries like <laughs> and then suddenly you're back in the saddle that's the amazing thing about the first moments of this and and the whole thing all the way through but 
you know, as cool as um, uh, playing possum is, as charming as it is, I feel like this is something a little bit a step beyond that. Where oh yeah, like this is she's a cool- got some ground under her, like some people supporting her to really go for it. Absolutely. This is a quantum leap beyond playing possum. As great as playing possum is, especially as just this like ramshackle, like as indie as indie gets, like put it together in her fucking kitchen as the kids are running around and she's just doing all the instruments. She presses the records and sends them out herself. Like this is, this is a whole new dimension for her because it's songwriting from her uh, for the most part. It's almost all original, you know, compositions by her, give or take a few. Um, and, uh, and she's got incredible players behind her, as we talked about, as you mentioned, Jeff, with Lou here on the first track. She's also got all of fucking Sonic Youth on this record. Lee, uh, uh, Thurston, and Kim uh, yeah. all show up here throughout, uh, as well as Jad and, uh, and Daniel, Daniel himself. And Daniel, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's a real, like, murderer's row, uh, 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 you know, wrecking crew behind her. Of just like, you know, who's who of like the coolest names in indie rock circa 1989. Plus, plus you have the star producer Kramer. He, at this point in time, he was king of the scene. He was way more talked about than Steve Albini. You know, you have three masterpiece Velvet, uh, excuse me, Galaxy 500 albums. Oh, yeah. That really gave this guy super cred. And he, and he deserved it. Those albums are incredible. And, um, you also have there's one other person that we should we should mention that is overlooked, I think, is a Scott Jarvis from the Work Dogs, who mm. also I love Rob Kay and the Work Dogs, but he was um great musician, great drummer also. And he he shows up here too, and he also became a part-time half Japanese out uh, member. So you've got it's kind of like it once again, just like the tour I saw, it's kind of like Mo Tucker with half Japanese with Sonic Youth with Kramer, who's also a member of Japanese at this point. And it's um, it's not incestuous. It's just a bunch of cool people collaborating in a real indie world before the world gets turned upside down. Sure. I, think, I think this is peak indie. Absolutely. Me. Yeah, and I think it speaks to, like, how uh, respected Mo would have been at this time, right, and how influential she still would have been looked at even as someone who had only released one solo record in the 20 fucking years since the Velvets had dissolved at this point, uh, that she was able to just marshal all of these, you know, people from all of these different worlds. And they're just like, you know, happy to come in and just play a part like Lou fucking, you know, himself, like, like really took, you know, took his time, went out of his way to like participate on this record um, and boost it and stuff. And he even called it like one of his picks of 1989 or something like that. And she's talked about that in interviews, like the warmth and just like amazing kind of support that he gave her after, you know, decades of, of her, you know, doing her own thing. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's heartwarming to see to me. She also is just someone who generates so much affection. Like she's, sure. has a unique ability to kind of create excitement and a really spur on a kind of playful attitude in, underground music that i think is really actually one of the hardest things to um authentically come across like there's a lot of cool bands but i think a lot of cool bands actually love when there's somebody who's who's kind of better than cool like she's way cooler than cool in a way (laughs) she's you know I, i don't know how else to put it there's just an authenticity a spontaneity and and a sense of like fun that comes out of her presence and her playing that I think all these people were uh, gravitate you know, magnetized toward. 
authenticity would be the word that used to be used before that became a uh, is that a bad a, word now a, a bad word to use in uh, the the common day parlance. You know, I went. You know, the title of the, of the album was intriguing to me when it came out because and now I think I understand it more. She she had a, a an axe to grind. She was exiled from the music industry, mm. and I'm not going to even say self exiled. I mean, it, 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 there was no room for her whatsoever. Therefore, she ends up in Denver you know, working uh, minimum wage or whatever, low wage for Walmart. And then she's coming back. And and what does the abdication even mean? I think in her mind, she knew that the Velvets were royalty, but they were also, you know, shit canned out of the, out of the world of the commercial music industry. And I think she held a grudge. So now she kind of comes back and, you know, we saw it live. I saw her live many times, by the way. She was playing for keeps. So in the album to me is like three or four things going on here. There's a lot of Diddley influence. She even covers Bo Diddley. She loved Bo Diddley. Yeah. She moved to Georgia and lived in the same town as Bo Diddley before he died. I don't know if you know that. Wow. And then there's another song on here. Um, I think it's called Talk So Mean. Yeah. That also reminds me of The Fall. Uh, yeah. Like a great <laughs> 60s garage cover by The Fall. But huh. you can imagine Marky Smith singing it, but instead it's her. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> the rhythm's not Mo Tucker, you know, beat anymore. You know, there's like polyrhythms. So it's, yeah. it's kind of wild. Uh, I guess we should mention Pale Blue Eyes, of course, because it's a really long one. And Lou is also doing the most beautiful solo and tone throughout that. That's Lou also on the lead guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, you know, if you're just a Lou Reed fan and want to check this album out, you're going to get that. But the rest of it is like really interesting and almost like a Captain Beefheart way. It's all just rhythms and it's really wild. It's not a typical, you know, indie album of that period at all. It has its own unique feel to me. Mm. But that's another thing about indie at this point, which is, I think, something you're kind of getting at is like it really hasn't coalesced into these distinct chunks of like this is an indie sound that 20 bands do and then this is another indie sound that another 20 bands do it was kind of more um i, I guess less categorized uh, categorized it was, well, it was a, a more it, useful descriptor indie meant independent, independent. Just it like was independent of yes. a label that didn't necessarily imply the way the record sounded yeah, yeah. right An aesthetic today approach. at this point exactly at this point that is very codified and, and it has been established as like an indie record is going to sound like one of three different things right uh, but at this point, you know, and this is maybe maybe kind of the inflection point, like when we're about to start moving towards that direction where things are going to coalesce, uh, but we're still kind of drafting in the wake of like R.E.M.'s rise and stuff in the mid 80s. Um, at this point, just it was a fucking independent record. It was an uh, independent, the spirit of the of independence, really. And exactly. The, the And half Japanese, to their credit, I think, you know, they were one of those first bands that were really connected to that spirit and uh, as an ideal. And that's why they were also, it's no coincidence, they were the ones to reach out and be there for somebody they rightfully recognized having 
created a space for them as a band. You know, that that this is it is a really beautiful moment that this record, just what it represents in terms of the next generation of artists taking the time to be like, wait a minute, like the the person who invented this thing is in fucking Denver. Like we She's right go- there. She's behind the fucking checkout stand at Walmart. She's scanning your rollback deals. Yeah, it was like an elder statesperson thing. It used to happen all the time, mostly with the Norton record scene in Hoboken, where we would they would bring in a great artist like a Cordell Jackson or uh, perhaps like a Hazel Atkins or um, the Blonde Bomber. Uh, I'm trying to think of his name right now. I apologize. But anyway, so th- there was always this thing going on. But all of a sudden, this scene didn't really have that kind of a thing where we'd bring in an elder statesperson for the night and celebrate them. But then she really went all for it. And then Lou loved it, too. This is what was interesting that people don't remember. The New York album was a big resurgence for for interest in Lou. Yeah, this is the same year. Right. And the Feelies were technically the opening act for most of that New York tour, at least on the East Coast. But what people don't know is that Lou loved the album so much and saw the fire in Mo that Mo's band, backed by Half Japanese, also uh, were the opening act for a lot of the New York tour as well. Mm. The twist, unfortunately, for Jad, because he told this to me, was that when Lou, on the second sh- night of the tour, heard Jad Fair sing, he relegated him uh, off the mic not to sing and had to just play <laughs> guitar and maracas and percussion, <laughs> and only Mo could sing at that point. So that was also uh, uh, interesting. Well, yeah. um, Lou. That's a true story. That's classic Lou. This episode of Jokerman Podcast is presented by DistroKid. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to distribute their music and get it into all of the places it needs to go. Your Spotify's, your Apple Music's, your YouTube's, your TikTok's, your Tidal's, your Instagram's, and any other streaming service of note. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy. With unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100%, that's right, 100, all of them, folks, of their royalties and earnings. DistroKid comes with tons of great features, including Mixia, which allows DistroKid users to put the finishing touches on their tracks in just minutes, getting a customizable and polished end result that anyone can feel confident in before sharing it with the world. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store to download it today. So the other track I think that might be fun to discuss because I know how much you guys love songs for Drella is yes. Andy, the song she wrote oh. about Andy Warhol. On yeah. this in my mind, when I heard it again recently, I was like, wow, this really could be the other lost song from the songs for Drella suite of songs about Andy Warhol, 
which I was very lucky. I attended the filming and taping of one of those shows. They did it a couple times in Brooklyn. At Ends? Yeah, I was there for that. Wow, hell yeah. And Mo was there too, by the way. I'm uh, sure. That night, because I saw her that night there. And um, it was a magical night, because obviously we didn't know the songs yet. Ah, for me, you know, it was all kind of coalescing off of this early obsession that Phil Milstein started <laughs> with what goes on magazine and getting all the records. You know, we're, all, we're all playing catch up if we weren't born or around, you know, in the uh, mid to late 60s. So, you know, it was really interesting. There, there they were. And um, Mo was in the audience. And a friend of mine was actually a friend of mine who was one of the camera people on Half Japanese was on second camera filming this thing, 16 millimeter songs for Drella. I don't think Mo played that night. Although in my mind, there's some weird thing where she did play together with them one night, but it's uh. certainly not on the album. And it, I don't think it's on the film, but she was in the audience that night. And when you heard those songs and John on the piano and the viola, it was just, it was too much. It was very emotional for me. And then oh, yeah. on this album, the song Andy's really beautiful. Absolutely. Um, What'd you think of that? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like her, like, it, it, it's like proto-Drella, right? Because this, like, came out, I guess this probably would have been cut before they did this, the Drella performances. You know, not saying that this influenced Drella necessarily, but there is something, like, kind of um, uh, uh, thematically resonant in the fact that, like, she's approaching this subject and Lou and John are approaching the same subject at the same time but in their own, like, very distinct ways. Like, whereas Drella is this, like, extraordinary artistic, like, stark, right, artistic uh, fusion between two, like, you know, the immovable force and the uh, unstoppable object or whatever. Like, this Andy by Mo is just this, like, absolutely guileless, like, beautiful, um, just, like, ap- touching a remembrance of the guy uh, that is as as easy to listen to and enjoyable, I think, um, as Drella isn't, you know, because that is sort of a difficult kind of record to get into if you're just listening to it like as a musical object, right? Yes. Yeah, so, well, the whole journey of of songs for Drella is is to, is to get to that last song, which is as straightforward and um, heartfelt as this one just is out of the gate. Um, Hello, it's me. Lou's song at the at the very end of Songs for Drella is so direct and um, completely without uh, artistic um, framing. It's just a song he's singing to Andy. Um, and this song, I mean, I wonder if this if if Andy Mo Tucker's song did influence Songs for Drella. I mean, what you were talking about, Jeff, about the the circumstances around Lou being so, uh, it sounds happy to see this come about and um, excited by Mo's continued work. Uh, I, I wonder if that was something that spurred him on.
I never thought of it. You know, it just, um, Life in Exile is 80, 1988. Drella is 90. Yeah, right. maybe. I never really thought of it. I mean, um, it, it seems it, it's such a beautiful little, this song is so pretty. And, and so, I mean, to be one of the people she talks about in the song, I, I can only imagine the way she I says, love that like, line. Yeah, Lou and, and John and Sterling and me down in the factory or whatever. Yeah, like it's, yeah. oh my God, it brings, like we it makes me proclaim. It's our life and uh, it, couldn't, it couldn't last. Yeah, incredible. That's like, that's like the Bataclan song that Kale sings about the, what is it? The dirtiest, hairiest, loudest, biggest, loudest, hairiest band in the air. <laughs> it reminds me, you know, which I, which right. I also love, by the way. Oh, that's a good um, one. You know, there's a, there's also a, you know, to me, like, like if you really were tuning in just to get that after hours, I'm sticking with you. I'm going to sing you a bedtime melody, nighttime song, you know, storybook thing. She does a beautiful lead belly. Uh, Good night, Irene. Oh, yeah. Gives you that. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I love, it's I mean, great. I've never heard a bad Good Night Irene, but hers is, I thought it was fantastic. Well, that, and that's, that's what's so, so fun about this record to me, which I, I will confess, this is like a recent discovery for me. I had not really dug into Moe's solo shit really much at all prior to, you know, actually, you know, embarking on this journey here. Uh, so, I mean, that's maybe part of why I'm so excited to, to talk about it and, uh, have such fun feelings about it at the moment. But, um, uh, um, what's so, so thrilling to me about this record is that, um, is like what we talked about earlier, right? With indie music, not being a descriptor of the way it sounds, but a, a descriptor of the, the, um, uh, the means of production, uh, behind the record, right? It, it, the songs from one, one to the other can sound so radically different because Goodnight Irene, third track, follows Hey Mersh and Spam Again, probably the two most well-known songs on the record and two most kind of straightforward, you know, new Mo compositions. Then you got Goodnight Irene and then you got Chase, which is the eight-minute like Sonic Youth drone where she is just fucking pounding along with the rest of that band. It's just, um, I mean, it, you know, I, I know we talk a lot about uh, like John's capability to kind of switch between genres and move from uh, uh, fucking dying on the vine to do not go gentle into that good night, you know, on uh, Words of the Dying. You know, he's got a, a command of a bunch of different genres from record to record. Moe's doing it all here on one record from just song to song. It's extraordinary. Well, the Velvets always did that. And it seems like this is uh, just another example of how important she was to the character of the group because. It, that seems to be what she wants to do or just does naturally when does she's naturally, given yeah. free reign. And it it does bring me back to thinking about the way that it it takes kind of um, an effort by others, I think, to come together and push something like that. It's very difficult, I think, for one artist who has that kind of omnivorous artistic uh, uh, appetite to succeed sometimes on their own like that's not what the system is set up that i mean that is the truly the independent spirit of of what we have with the velvet underground with mo tucker it's like and not being concerned about like well is this the right thing is what's the sonic palette of this record how is this going to chart compared to this other record that sounds like it like this is just a collection of things that kind of came together around the same time that felt right in the, in the moment. One little anecdote that Kramer told me, because I called him the other day just to get a refresher because he ran the sessions. You know, it, it really was indie. Now, the Noise New York studio in downtown Manhattan, it was a four-flight walk-up. 
And I said, Kramer, what's the story? Did like Lou schlep his own amp? Because it was kind of that kind of a session. This is not a big major label session. Sure. And he says, no, not, not exactly. He said, when Lou showed up, he yelled up the four flights of stairs. He yelled, fuck. And then <laughs> some people ran down to get, you know, it was, he had his amp and his guitar and he was there, you know, to nail his session. And that's what went down. So that's what Kramer said. I thought it was cool. One thing that's pretty cool also that maybe people don't even know about was that Mo got so much love off of this album and from the, the tour, which I got to see, that she kept going and she made another couple of albums with this band. But guess who was on stage the next time she showed up at Maxwell's playing guitar in her band? Sterling Morrison. And we mm. got Sterling playing. So Sterling all of a sudden was out and you're getting Mo Tucker and Sterling Morrison together in a tiny little club, Maxwell's. It's beautiful. Singing along to all these songs that now we've all learned. And um, I got to tell you, that was, you know, if, if the album was peak indie, that was like peak fun for us. Sure. You know, like we we weren't getting that anywhere else. Something like that. That was just like, oh, my God. You got half Japanese on stage with Mo Tucker. No, oh, there's Sterling Morrison. That's fantastic. Yeah, there's. I think there's a song on the next record. I spent a week there the other night that has all of the Velvets on it. It's got John, it's got Sterling, it's got Mo, obviously, and it's got Lou. And that's like the only studio song that the four of them ever recorded together, ever after White Light, White Heat. There's there's like Coyote off of the 93 reunion record, right? But that was just a live cut. Um, and so, uh, you know, like this really is, Mo is kind of like, uh, uh, giving everyone the opportunity to like bring bring things back together and thinking about it now actually because we just talked to uh, Scott Richmond recently uh, Lou's you know friend and collaborator uh, about the new Tai Chi book that they put out for Lou and one of the things we covered there was this uh, section where they talked to Pin Gillette uh, who witnessed some of the uh, like rehearsals for the 93 Velvets reunion. And he, Gillette, said that Mo was kind of running the show and kind of in mm. charge of things there. And so like thinking about that statement and this record and just kind of this kind of arc of her career, right, where she's giving Lou and John and Sterling the opportunity to all kind of come back into connection with one another, maybe surrounding the death of Andy, maybe surrounding just wanting to help their friend get a new record out. Um, you know, she really she really does kind of seem like the 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 nucleus right of this band that kind of pulls everyone in from their wildly disparate artistic uh, uh, journeys, and it's all arguably because of Phil going uh, to her house and finding her at Walmart, I guess, right? I, I mean, this that is uh, a case could be made that the reason the '93 reunion happens. I mean, I'm this is wild conjecture, but. It's possible that that only really happened because of this uh, happening. Because of like, you know, it wouldn't have happened if Mo wasn't working in music. It just wouldn't have happened if Mo was not active. And what got her active was just somebody being like, "Hey, you're great. Like, what? Uh, you should be doing this again." And and then people coming together and making it happen. Let's it, put it really on a show. Is. Yeah, it. It's it's not. I mean, when I think about it that way it's like you know yeah a to b like somebody says hey you should do this again then there's that whole reunion tour you know you brought up an important name the you know behind the scenes of all this was you know and, and the reason this indie album and the and a few of the others could happen was that 
you know, Penn Jillette paid for this. So, you know, he's this, you know, successful magician. This Mo record, he financed like the sessions? 100%. Wow. And it's his label. So huh. he put he put out half Japanese. This is all, we're getting bombed with about four or five great records in a two-year period that he paid for. So he put out Charmed Life by Half Japanese. He puts out Daniel Johnston's um, 1990 album on 50 Skidillion Watts also produced by Kramer. He puts out the Jad Fair and Daniel Johnston solo album, which is a masterpiece. And he puts out this album. And a lot of those sessions are all commingled, by the way, because it all happened via Kramer. Sure, sure. Uh, and then you got the Mo album. So he financed all these records independently. And, you know, props to him for doing that, because like took it took an impresario to write a check and make it happen. I, you know, who knew that uh, <laughs> Pin Gillette uh, played such an integral role in uh, uh, just this uh, uh, extraordinary moment of time in the um, whatever you want to call it, the just the life, the life cycle of the members of the Velvet Underground, I guess. That's why. Uh, We've also got, I mean, I think we've touched on most of the songs. Uh, I want to mention Work oh. and Spam again, because they are of a piece in a way. I mean, these two songs and the first, but especially Spam again and Work, like these are um, these are real working class anthems. Uh, Sing <laughs> a little and, bit of the working man blues, yeah, as these another artist bring, has put it. <laughs> give me my boots and shoes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> These are just songs that are directly about uh, the the horror of being an artist stuck doing something that does not engage that part of you, where the people who are, are in charge of your livelihood, that your worth is exactly the same as the next person, which is to say very, uh, nothing to them. Um, when I get my check, I know something's wrong. Like it's it's a great way of uh, it ties into the title, you know. After abdication, it's like little do they know that I am. I sh- I ought to be paid a lot more than this <laughs> for who I am. Yeah, what no, she's I do. Call, she's calling out. She's calling out Sam Walton and the Walton family in those That's songs. That's right. Yeah, pretty pretty clearly. And it was funny. I forgot about all that aspect until I re-listened to it. Uh, the other day, and it really hit me this in this period of time. And I'm not going to equate myself to working like Mo at Walmart, but mm. at the time, I was directing a lot of Walmart commercials in Canada, more than you want to know. Wow! And All right, I I was able to relate a little bit because you know I I, I felt like Mo felt. And I was like, I'm going to do like a Robin Hood thing. I'm going to take this Walmart money and pay for this film with Mo Tucker in it. Half <laughs> Japanese, the band that would be king. So that's 
So, you know, that's basically the truth. That's what I did. But um, when I heard her singing about it, I felt for her and I felt for all the working class people. There was a great dialogue happening around this time that people forget about, about Walmart and giant big box stores decimating Main Street Americas in all towns. Sure. And I, so when Mo was the voice of that at this time, I thought I, f- I felt like it really resonated, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's it's just an extraordinary moment, I think, uh, in uh, music in general, because it's like, um, you know, you get a little bit of this, this kind of like, you know, again, the working blues uh, aspect of things almost, uh, you know, from obviously like the punk scene, the New York punk scene, the uh, Los Angeles punk scene, early 80s, you know, had, had an element to that. You know, the Minutemen obviously kind of had... Uh, 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 an aspect of this to their music but like it, as you move forward from this point in time from 89 or so like this aspect of things really starts to starts to vanish uh, and by the time you get to like the strokes right in 2000 2001 who are back to save rock I fucking love the strokes you know one of my favorite bands of all times but you know they they were all born with a fucking silver spoon in their mouths um, and um, it, it's uh, it, there's something really kind of inspiring I think about um, Mo's uh, dedication to this, and not even dedication. It's just it's what comes naturally to her because it's not like these are protest songs the way that no, Bob they're Dylan not. That, that's early right. songs were right. This is just like this is her writing about her her own experience, and it just so happens to be the experience of millions of fucking people across the country. Uh, obviously, many of whom presumably aren't listening to this record, but um, I don't know. It, it, it feels fucking. It, it, they ought to exactly. It feels vital to me even today here in 2023. You know, I uh, was thinking about the chapter in Bob Dylan's philosophy of modern song on uh, Jimmy Reed's Big Boss Man, mm, one of mm-hmm. the great songs about uh, this very topic. And uh, his little section on it is so great. I've, I think about it a lot, actually. Of all the pieces in philosophy of modern song, um, it's this very sardonic but very true little bit about Big Boss Man. He says, modern man is your employee, servile and hypocritical. He's the informed citizen, the rational being, the yes man and the ass kisser, and his temple is the movie theater. He's working for you round the clock, and he's dehydrated. <laughs> his temple it would is the take, movie theater. is really good. <laughs> it would take oceans of water to cleanse him from his previous lives. He needs rivers of poetry and music, but you won't let him pause or stand down for a second from his chores. That part is something that I think about a lot when it comes to the uh, the plight of an artist working a, a blue collar job. It's like that's you know you feel like you need. I mean, I couldn't say any better. Rivers of poetry and music uh, to sort of undo the harm that such a position puts on somebody who is meant to be doing creative work. Well, but it's even uh, it's even more than that. Like, I, 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 to me, like getting this out of Mo's music, like I, I don't feel like she is like drawing a, stin- a distinction between herself and like her coworkers at Walmart, most of whom presumably are not former drummers of the fucking Velvet Underground. No, right? I, no. I don't think she's putting herself at this sort of level above them. It, it's it's more you know finding common ground with all of these other people who also probably have their kids going to school to get free meals, like she says in work. Uh, but she just so 
happens to also have this background as the drummer of one of the greatest bands of all time. I think that what's great about that Dylan thing is that I think I think what he's saying is that everybody deserves to have that moment of respite and like have room in their life for like romance and dignity feelings and never been never been photographed yeah (laughs) and and this that kind of work just uh you know it completely bars you from that and and uh of course the end of that little section he's like still talking as if you're the big boss man he says everyone wants to emulate you like he's like "You're, you're this is great you're what you're doing is so good just making these people work themselves to the bone that's good uh and i think that what drives these songs and makes them so feel so vital and spirited is like yeah it it comes directly out of it's like she just punched out and it it becomes realer every day unfortunately yeah same as it ever was um i think we've hit most of the record at this point we've this has uh been sort of atypical jokerman uh, experience here because we've just sort of hopscotched around but i think that's totally okay because mo herself is hopscotching around i, I do want to uh to spend a second just talking about do it right there at the very end which is such a beautiful kind of closer i think um and uh a, an unexpected kind of note to end on as far as i'm concerned uh, because it is, it's just, it's just a piano, right? I think it's just the piano and her and Daniel Johnston, um, you know, at the end of this record that has been a lot of heavy drones from Sonic Youth, you know, hard rocking guitar from Lou uh, and Mo herself. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's been a really kind of firm uh, rock and roll record. And then here at the very end, it's just this, this like, uh, almost like sing along kind of moment, just her and Daniel, the same way that, uh, you know, I'm sticking with you almost is right at the very end of, um, at the very end of the Velvet's record. Like it's, um, uh, it's beautiful to me. I think, uh, I, I love this song. I, it's, I, I love so many of the songs on this record, but this one, it's it, it might be my very favorite song of all of them, and it's a it's a Johnston composition. And how did that? What you said there was a reason why that happened, but um, I'll I'll give you the backstory because it's really interesting. So basically, Daniel came to New York with a mission. He was already had befriended Jed Fair, but they hadn't actually met yet. So they meet for the very first time at this session, and then and they go to the Statue of Liberty together. And they don't really know each other yet, but they're fans of each other's album. But Daniel had an agenda, and that was to insert himself into Velvet Underground history. He knew the session was going to be going down. And there was a benefit for the Village Voice. And uh, Sonic Youth were on the bill, and I believe it was Run DMC. And Daniel also crashed that bill and played. And in sort of ingratiated himself into the session. He wasn't supposed to even be there. And then he started being really friendly because he is to Kramer and to um, Mo and Jad and everybody was there. This is before he gets taken away for the day. And at night off the clock, as it was on Penn's dime, Kramer would do the 1990 album sessions that we came to hear, which is a great album by Daniel Johnson. Mm-hmm. So basically the, the do it right is, you know, it's a Daniel Johnson song, but Mo and everybody else sings a duet. Mo sings with him, but there's a little bit of everybody on the chorus all joining in. Yeah, it kind of sounds like that. 
I'm not sure if Lou is on the chorus there, but he could be. I got to look it up. But everybody else is. And I just think that song is so beautiful. I loved it so much. It's fantastic. That, and it's a, it was kind of a lost album for Daniel Johnson. Excuse me, a lost song for Daniel Johnson fans. But I brought it into the soundtrack of The Devil and Daniel Johnson. And um, Dean and Britta did an instrumental version of it for the for the film. So that was pretty cool because I just love that song. Um, but yeah, you could easily make your own playlist, which is the 1990 Daniel Johnson album produced by Kramer, and tag that on, and it's even a better album. Mm. But at the same time, it really is a beautiful ending to Moe's album. Now, and But it's a surprise. It's really Daniel's voice that's dominating the track. Yeah, Daniel on the piano, because he plays beautiful piano. And, uh, you know, it, it just gives, it adds to the variety of the experience. Uh, you know, you, you talked about the blues of it all. And I think the spirit of the blues and Big Boss Man is accurate in the in her uh grind and axe toward the working man and the and the the billionaire Sam, Sam Walton and Walmart that she's singing about. There's no doubt about that. But rhythmically, you know, the Velvets were anti-blues, as you know. And I feel like she's coming from a very strict Bo Diddley vibe. She also talks about Olatunji a lot. And I love what she did with this album because it's like a cacophony of rhythm and noise on a lot of the tracks. It's not noise that we think of in a feedback sonic youth way either but there is a cacophony of rhythm and I, it kind of takes over the album and it's really fun and it's fresh sounding to me even to this day it doesn't sound like other albums of this time and it's mm -hmm. not like a 4-4 rock album by any stretch of the imagination no so I, you know upon re-listening because it's been quite a few years it was just really fun to go back down this rabbit hole with her and see that oh, yeah. she, you know when, when it counted you know, she came up with the goods. You know, and it's funny that you you mentioned the fall because uh, Marky Smith, also big big Bo Diddley fan, uh, they think they do have some common ground there. Actually, yeah. Well, that rhythm track and the rhythm guitar patterns of "Talk So Mean" it sounds like I can't figure out what '60s garage song they're just ripping off, which is great. But yeah. that's what they're doing there, and it could be a fall song easily. I, I think I said this earlier. And I, I I I ended up listening to that one over and over again because it was so fun and different from the rest of the record, you know. Mm. Each song, uh, you know, better than the last in its own way. Every every song is good as any other. It's uh, it's a fantastic journey from start to finish. I really just cannot emphasize how uh, extraordinary and revelatory for me, at least personally, listening to this record has been because this is um, it's just like I can't believe I have slept on it for as long as I have. Uh, so very, very happy to be able to give it a little bit of do here, uh, even at this late date, Life in Exile After Abdication. Uh, Jeff, do you have a, a three-star rating uh, out, of, out of three stars, one, two, or three stars for Life in Exile After Abdication? Can you, can you give us your take here? I mean, I'm going to give it my full-fledged three stars because I really, All right. I, 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 had a, I had a ball. I, I listened to it multiple times the other day. It was so fun. I'm gonna give it three. Fantastic! I'm right there with you. This is as this is as three as three gets, as far as I'm concerned. Honestly, I, I mean the three 1989 records from the former Velvets, Wards of the Dying, uh, New York, and Life in Exile after Abdication, maybe the best one of the three. Not not that they need to be pitted against one another, but this is like right the fuck up there with those other two. 
Well, uh, as far as I'm concerned, nothing Mo Tucker does is less than three stars. All right, right on. This is no, no uh, exception. Cool. Oh, she's as good as it gets. Uh, well, thank, thank you so you, much Jeff. for yeah. joining us, Jeff. This was a fantastic uh, peek into this wildly uh, incestuous and twisted uh, kind of world. <laughs> incestuous. Uh, that was, or just all uh, of these. Let's say united. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, I, you guys are awesome. I love the Jokerman. I, I, I absolutely appreciate you inviting me on. This is a fun little uh, rabbit hole for me to go back inside. I spent too many years inside it already. Might as well just live there, I guess. <laughs> Thank well, couldn't you. have yeah, asked couldn't for, have had uh, for a better guest for this particular better, yeah. topic and this particular day. This is this is great. Exactly right. Do you have any uh, any plugs or anywhere that folks out there can uh, follow along with you online? You know, all the films, uh, Devil and Daniel Johnson is readily available. If you have this thing called the internet, you can Google it, and it's streaming everywhere. Uh, <laughs> if you want to see half Japanese, the band that would be king, there's only one way to see it, and that, of course, is Vimeo. So that's um, that's a click away. If you want to watch Mike Judge presents Tales from the Tour Bus, first season country, I think you can get that on Apple or on um, Amazon Prime. Uh, then there's a sports film out there people might like for on ESPN, on ESPN 30 for 30, titled The Real Rocky, about the Bayonne bleeder, Chuck Webner. And uh, ah. that's enough plugs. Well. Wow. Sounds like there's something for everyone there, whether you're a uh, boxing head or a uh, half Japanese head. Uh, thank you again, Jeff. Fantastic uh, time. Fantastic record. Uh, Mo Tucker, folks. Best drummer ever. Mo Tucker. Jokerman. You got to do it right. Choice is yours. The choice is yours.